Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 15 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this, our 15th episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about the district championships meet that we just had in the Pacific Northwest uh, just a couple of days ago, which was fantastic. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about a theory that we've been kind of on and off talking about for a while, uh, the idea of, of running two divisions within our quizzing district, and other districts do this, and so we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the pros and potential cons for doing it, and in other districts where they do this and it works out well, uh, talking a little bit about why it works out well. Uh, Scott has a few specific questions that came up from the uh, from the meet, I think, or, or specific questions from the material from First and Second Corinthians that we can dive into a little bit. Uh, we ended up using the CBQZ uh, app at the meet, and so we want to talk a little bit about kind of the pros and cons of how that worked, and dive into some quizzing evangelism ideas. And Scott has a CQT, uh, CQLT Rules Committee uh, recent mean, uh, meeting update, and apparently I can't talk. So, <laughs> Scott, why don't you <laughs> jump in here and save me? So the, our first topic is district championships recap. So PNW had our end-of-the-year district championships meet where our top 18 teams qualified for it. And it constitutes about a third of the weighting for individuals as they try to make internationals, and we had a wonderful meet over two days. Every single team quizzed between, I think, 10 and 13 times. So a lot of quizzing over two days, and it was a really wonderful meet. I always love to see kids uh, come back to district championships or arrive at district championships after their experiences at Great West and watch them quiz. And there were definitely some quizzers that either maintained their same quality from before Great West or increased it, which... Uh, it's pretty ra- pretty rare, actually. Only the top handful of quizzers really maintain how they've been doing throughout the year, because unless you're in the running for internationals, most often kids will slack out just a little bit or slack in their studying a little bit and the quality will go down. But there were some kids that I think were very encouraged by their experiences at Great West and wanted to keep, keep working hard and do well at district champs, and they, they certainly did that. Yeah, very cool. I particularly loved the fact that, uh, so normally we have four quiz rooms and four quiz masters, and this time we had four quiz rooms and five quiz masters, which was fantastic, I think, for every one of us, because uh, Jeremy ran around from room to room uh, giving, I think everybody got a break at some point, right? Yeah, so because of the way our schedule is designed for district championships, we have only 18 teams, and they all have eight prelims instead of six but we keep the same number of quiz rooms. So everyone is quizzing more often than at a normal meet. And because of this, I can't devise of a schedule that has um, each room full in every time slot. And so each room gets a built-in break once during the prelim round, which is a difference from our normal district meets. But in addition to that, Jeremy was able to quiz master. So I believe every single quiz master in room got at least two breaks from quizzes. Yeah, that was fantastic. In my room, I uh, ended up answer judging uh, for Jeremy, uh, for Jeremy, and that was a treat. Uh, I mean, he's he's a great quiz master, and it also gave me a chance to 
uh, take a break and kind of watch quizzing for a little bit and think about it from a different perspective, uh, more on the critical analysis of, of the questions and what was going on like an answer judge would rather than uh, having to think in, in, in so much more about the, the pacing and controlling of the room and so forth that a quiz master has to do. And so that was great, being able to have multiple roles like that uh, within a single quiz. It was great to kind of mix things up a little bit like that. That's cool. I really hadn't thought about those different perspectives, how as a quiz master, you're really focused on timing and reading and pace of the room and all of that. And as an answer judge, you really just get to think about the questions being asked and the answers being given and that aspect of it. Yeah. So it was enjoyable. It was very enjoyable. And of course, it's always great to uh, see the quizzers uh, do their thing and to uh, cheer them on in a non-biased and completely neutral way. Uh, so that was great, too. It was a wonderful ending to our year. Uh, we also had our leadership meeting that we have at most meets during lunch on Saturday. And we talked about end-of-the-year things and um, potential structures for next year. And we kind of got into a rabbit trail, but we ended up talking about multiple divisions, which is something that many districts do. They have a quote-unquote senior division and a quote-unquote junior division. And something like that is something we would definitely value because right now um, there's quite a spread between the best quizzers and the most experienced and the least experienced quizzers. And we have six prelims where all of the teams kind of have a random draw. And if you run into a quiz where there's a very experienced team and a very inexperienced team, that very inexperienced team is just going to be bludgeoned and it's not really a good experience for them. We do recognize that there's value in having everyone together and not completely segmenting age or experience groups for the entire of a district meet because there's a lot of value apart from the competition of interaction and friendships. But I think we would love a, a, we would love a structure where we can have a little bit more segmenting of that competitive aspect so that the inexperienced quizzers have more of an opportunity to get questions and be encouraged. I brought up some knowledge that I got from Western Canada. They have a, a senior and a junior division, and in the junior division, there's a limited number of verses that all of the specialty questions come from, like your situations or your chapter verse references or your multiple answers. And they said that as a result of that limited verse set for the specialty questions, the jumping pace on the specialty questions is just about the same speed as the senior division. And I think that's kind of a really cool structure that they've created that allows the younger quizzers to have a reasonable amount of verses to memorize, but then compete on them in roughly the same manner that the senior quizzers are competing on the material. And it builds builds the fun and the strategy and the technique at an early age, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, that is very wonderful. And I love the idea that you can have a more competitive uh, entry as a junior uh, or younger quizzer and still have kind of the uh, a, a way to kind of bridge that early gap uh, because it is it does take a, a lot of effort to you know when you when you're first coming in that um, you know we always see these exceptions there are certain folks in our district who are exceptions to the rule who uh, we marvel at because even as rookies, they're amazing. Uh, but really, we shouldn't consider them the rule. They're really the exception. It is very hard to go from never seeing quizzing before to really holding your own in a quiz. And so the opportunity of having a two division kind of thing, a junior and, uh, and senior division is to provide that opportunity to sort of get to a stepping stone before going on to the full, uh, the full thing. 
Yeah, I'd be very interested in how districts do it because if you have a small church program and they have a few quizzers that want to be in the senior division and one or two that want to be in the junior division, you're, you don't really have enough to create a team. And so I don't know if quizzers are combined or scrambled onto teams for the junior division or if they just have enough quizzers that that's not an issue. But I think there are some logistical hurdles that would have to be solved um, before rooms, you could implement a Yeah, rooms too. I mean, you would have to have, uh, you know, if we did it, we would have, say, four rooms. We would need to carve off one or two rooms to say this is the the junior division rooms. Yeah, and even there, you probably would want to move around both senior and junior division quizzes among the different rooms. Oh yeah, um, as as much as possible, you know. But yeah, interesting stuff. So our next agenda item is a few interesting questions that I ran into. Um, two of them were actually only one of them was at the meet, but the other two were before the meet as I was preparing the question set for the meet that I thought were had interesting qualities that are good for the podcast. So the first one was from 1 Corinthians 10.4, and it's a multiple answer. And the question is, drank what? So the word drank appears twice in this verse, but in this verse only, which is why uh, drank is a unique word, and thus this is a valid multiple answer as far as that part of it goes. But the rest of it is uh, the answers, so we need two of them. Well, one of them is drank what? The same spiritual drink. That one makes a whole lot of sense. But the other phrase is drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And I have drank what from the spiritual rock that accompanied them is that second answer. And it felt a little bit forced to me. And even though drank is being used as a verb in both cases, uh, well, I guess it it only is a verb, but it's kind of being used in not the exact same way. So what do you think of this multiple answer, Griffin? Well, I misunderstood the this question when I was first looking at it in the show notes because I didn't see it within the context of the actual reference material. So I am very quickly going into CBQZ right now so that I can type in chapter 10, verse 4, and look up the full material. So Anne drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Because obviously that second drank phrase, drank how, is a better question. But there are definitely cases where what is kind of used as a catch-all interrogative. Even if one might be better, um, what can be permissible? And so in this case, I think you could probably argue that this is a valid multiple answer. Um, but I would probably also say that it's not a very good one. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say it, it, it's... Looking at the actual verse four uh, in context, I think it is valid, but it's maybe edgy valid. I'm not a big fan of using an incorrect uh, interrogative. I, I, I mean, certainly we do have what as that catch-all, just like you said, but it feels kind of wonky. Uh, they drank what from the spiritual rock. It just it would be more like they drank from what would would make more sense. And so similarly, like if the preceding drank phrase didn't exist, would I write a question like a chapter verse reference that was drank what? Uh, and the answer being from the spiritual rock, I, like I would never write that. I would write uh, drank from what? Uh, and of course that being a two word key phrase would, would be sufficient enough to be able to answer the question. But regardless, uh, drank from what seems so much more reasonable and logical than drank what? So yeah, I, I think I think if I squint a little bit, I guess I could call this a valid multiple answer. I definitely wouldn't write this myself. 
I think we come to the same conclusion, so our podcast is boring once again. Yay, boring! Well, the next one is from 2 Corinthians 10.4, and I have this written as a chapter reference multiple answer, and it's what weapons. So weapons appears in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, um, and then it appears twice in 2 Corinthians 10.4, so looking at that alone, it is a valid chapter reference question. But the phrase is, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. And I kind of wanted to put aside the whole, is the second part of this a question that is not answered? What weapons? The weapons are not the weapons of this world. Putting that aside, um, is this a valid multiple answer? Because there are kind of two descriptions of weapons, but it's about the same weapons. And the description of the first weapons is kind of defining it by what it's not in the context of itself. And so it felt kind of kind of like a very weird multiple answer to me. Yeah, and I would go so far as to call this one invalid. Uh, when I'm looking at you know multiple answers or or considering the validity of multiple answer, I do a couple uh, two different things. The first thing I look at is to take each of the answers and uh, that I'm thinking might be part of the multiple answer, and say does this satisfy the question? Uh, if if the other part of if the other multiple answer wasn't there. Would this question make any sense? Would would it kind of flow and 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 be reasonable? And then the the other thing that I do is I flip the order around uh, of the of the multiple answers. So if if the if the question is something what A or B or A and B, then I should be able to flip those around and say B and A or B or A and actually have the thing sort of make some sort of uh, linguistic sense. And so for me, it just, I'm looking at this, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. That just doesn't come across to me as a multiple answer. It, it, I, I get sort of the theory of, well, are not the weapons of the world is that, you know, part two and we, we fight with is part one, but it just doesn't feel right to me. Interesting. Um, I think I would agree. It would be kind of forced to be a multiple answer in this case. I'm definitely guilty of being more lenient about how good a question is when I'm writing multiple answers because I think the fact that it's a multiple answer is enough of a clue to a quizzer that it wouldn't be super tricky for them. Um, but maybe that's not a good good way to go about writing questions. I think uh, – and the trouble is tricky for whom, right? For a certain number of senior-level quizzers in our district – uh, and probably quite a number of the senior level quizzers in our district, a question like this would not at all be confusing. Uh, they might not even blink at, at the kind of question. Uh, but I, I'm looking at more sort of the mid-level and the junior level uh, folks looking at this question, it, it is, or even a coach, like a first or, or second year coach. It would be difficult for me to explain how this would would come across as a valid multiple answer to them because it's it's just hard for me to see two parts uh or two or more parts to the answer sure now to play devil's advocate i think a multiple answer is defined by having more than one answer to the interrogative right and so while i do like your kind of check of switching the order that isn't i guess expressly required in the definition of a multiple answer um not saying that it does not make sense, but I, I've definitely run across multiple answers that are, I'm making something up here, but like he was traveling to Jerusalem and when he arrived, he was happy or something like that. And so he was what could be a multiple answer. Well, he wasn't happy before he was traveling to Jerusalem, but there are two answers to the interrogative. He was what? Yeah. But in your example, 
I, you know, A doesn't in, in the in the truth of the narrative of your example, A leads to B. But in the linguistic nature of the of the example, I'm not worried about A leads to B. I'm just simply saying A and B. And so if I flip those around, B can precede A, uh, even though A causes B. I, I still see those as, as as a multiple answer. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, sure, it does. And my last question that I ran across. Uh, I'm going to throw maybe a little bit of a curveball at you, Griffin. But okay. in, sec- in Second Corinthians 6.18, I had written the question, you will be my what, as a multiple answer. And I almost asked this in finals, but my answer judges quickly said, hey, this isn't valid. It does not contain a one, two, or three unique word or phrase in the first five words. And indeed, if you look up you will be my, you will be and will be my, Neither of those are unique phrases. So this cannot – and the answer in this case is sons and daughters. So this is invalid as a multiple answer question because it doesn't have a unique word or phrase in the first five words. However, the four-word phrase, you will be my, appears nowhere else in the material. And thus, because reference questions have to be written on material that is exactly the same more than once, this is also invalid as any kind of reference question, which means I cannot write the question, you will be my what, answer, sons and daughters – as any question type and have it be valid. That is correct. That is correct. So true. And under interrogatives, I believe even a standard interrogative, you have to have a two or three word key phrase within the first five words, right? Or a unique word. Right. Or a or, yeah. or, yeah, unique word. And so in this case, it couldn't even be a, uh, a standard interrogative. Of course, it wouldn't be because of sons and daughters, but it couldn't even be written as an interrogative. Sure. Um, I bet you you might be able to write, you will be my sons and what? Yes. Be my sons is probably a, a unique phrase. But Griffin, um, I've talked to some people and they find it odd the way that keyness or validity is defined for interrogatives and multiple answers. That it's a one word, unique word, or a two or three word, unique phrase that is completed within the first five words. Why not just say the question has to be unique in the first five words? I, and then I agree. I would love this. <laughs> Go make it happen. I, I think this would be, I, I, that would, I think that would clean things up considerably. Yeah. Cause I always try to think of what would be the, the competing or opposing viewpoint. And it might be, well, then question writers can now write all of these super vague five word unique phrases that don't have a two or three word unique phrase in them. And they're super vague. And I just don't think that Question writers are looking to write these kinds of questions and are thwarted by this two- and three-word unique phrase rule when it comes to question validity. I just think it would make things way simpler both checking and explaining to quizzers. And frankly, there are lots of questions that contain a three-word key phrase, and those words are words three, four, and five of the question. And so there's a case of a vague interrogative question that's not key until the fifth word, and it's really – structurally no different from a five word unique phrase. Yeah, I completely agree. And the other I would take it a step further and say, you know, in in past podcasts we've been talking about the idea that we want to have a wide range of question difficulty so that uh very strong quizzers are ch- have a challenge and younger quizzers, newer quizzers have a, an opportunity. And so, you know, if we're basically limiting and and we are limiting based on the current rulebook, the idea of a non two or three word or even single word uh, phrase or, or, or unique word, single unique word, uh, within the first five words, uh, we're sort of 
shaving off the upper end, I think, of question difficulty. Uh, if, a, if a question has no keywords and no key phrases, but becomes key on the fifth word, that's a very difficult question, uh, I would say, to, to, to be able to answer, or potentially a very difficult question to be able to answer uh, is, uh, accurately, especially if the other answers or the other things that are, say, the first four words uh, within the question are out of context. It would be a very difficult question to get right. Uh, and I think that adds something to the quiz program to have more and more variety of difficulty within the questions. I agree. And I remember finals at this past meet, among the three teams, um, there were four of our five quizzers that made the internationals. And of those four, three of them are very experienced. Um, they're either juniors or seniors. Uh, but the fourth is relatively new. I believe they're in their second year of quizzing. But in finals, specifically, they quizzed really, really well. And a handful of the questions that they got right were on unique phrases on interrogative questions. And I was very impressed because it's really not beneficial to study a unique word, a unique phrase list because there's thousands and the vast majority can't start an interrogative question. But you sometimes see quizzers jump on a unique phrase. They have no idea it's unique, but it just their mind goes to it because of how well they know the material. And in this case, the quizzer's mind went to it, and they quoted it and got it correct. And I think it was impressive to everyone. And those are definitely my favorite types of questions to see a quizzer get right. Yeah, yeah. So do you think there's a chance uh, the rule book might get amended in this way? I really have no idea. I have been on the rules committee for probably the better part of a year, and I don't believe we have discussed this at all. Um, it's never come up or anything about it. No, the only thing closest is when we were defining unique words and unique phrases. We just made sure to allow for words or phrases that appear more than once but only in one verse of the material to be also called unique. But we did not talk at all about the two, two to three word definition of a key phrase. But I think I might bring it up. It definitely is not something that would happen for internationals this year, but uh, perhaps in future years. Yeah, certainly. It's definitely edgy. I can see some. I can see some folks pushing back on it, but I, I think it's the right call. I think so too. I just I want to make sure I have a good argument because it makes it easier on question writers and those checking questions shouldn't be like a primary reason if it does make it more difficult or less appealing to quizzers. But I think it has virtually zero effect on quizzers and would provide a lot of simplicity and clarity to our rule book, which I think is sorely needed. Yeah, absolutely. So we used your application, CBQZ, for district championships, and that's the first PNW meet that we have used it for in all four rooms. And uh, the first uh, the first quiz meet, it has ever been used in, in the entire meet. Correct. Now, you have used it for an entire meet. Right? That is true. Yeah, just as an individual. I, I was kind of a rogue. But there is some cool functionality within CBQZ where one question set can be shared with multiple users. In this case, the different users were the other quiz masters. And they all ran it in each of their rooms. We did not have to communicate at all. And every time you generated a new quiz, CBQZ looked at all the questions that had been asked and said, hey, if, the, if a question has been asked, I'm going to prioritize it lower. And so I would bet that we didn't have any questions repeated because the set's over 3,000 questions, and no one had to make it so. Um, the app just did it. Every time you refreshed, it took into account any questions that had been asked since the last time 
um, a question set was generated, and we got high-quality question sets that always met question type minimums and maximums. And as a result, the meet went very, very smoothly, and we had many quizzes that were, were over quite fast, like even in 10 minutes. And I was trying to think about what about the application could lead to such things, because in previous meets, when you have questions printed on paper, you're not doing anything on the fly, so... You know, what's the big gain? And I thought of a couple areas. One is if you ever have to replace a question, you have to replace it with the same type. And the way that we generate quizzes is I just generate a question set of 20 questions, and then I generate a whole batch of quote-unquote extras, so for A's and B's and overtime and replacements. And so the quizmaster does have to grab that sheet and find a question of the type that they need and ask it from there. And if they happen to need something rare, like a quote these two or a CBRMA, they may have to flip through a couple sheets to find it. Whereas in CBQZ, it's one click and you can move on. Um, CBQZ also has functionality to mark questions for edit or for recheck. And the process to do that is probably quicker than grabbing a pen and writing on the paper sheet that you have. Um, and I know that all the, all the quiz masters have been marking up sheets and handing them back to me so that I can improve the quality of the question set. And they continue to do that, but within the application this time. And I think that was faster. And then I think the last thing is um, when I generate question sets, I make sure that those 20 questions meet the question type minimums. But because I don't specifically assign those extra questions to a particular quiz, the quiz master and scorekeeper together have to ensure that when they're asking A's and B's, they're not exceeding question type maximums. And when you're using CBQZ, it just takes care of all of that for you. So each of those by themselves is probably a small gain of time, but taken together, it probably kept the quizmasters fresher and in a clearer state of mind and just move things along faster. I think so. I think there are two other things that are more subtle, but may actually, I, I'm not sure. It's hard. I have no metrics on this. I'm just guessing. Um, might actually be even larger contributors, but maybe not. But I think they're certainly contributors uh, for me. Uh, and, and I'm so tired, I just forgot both of them. Um, so the first one, <laughs> when you're dealing with paper, and you know, let's say you're not even replacing a question, you're just going from question seven to question eight, you know, and, and seven was answered correctly, and you're moving on to eight. What I tend to do, because I want to have, you know, my my line of sight be relatively similar. What I mean by line of sight is, you know, let's say we're using a console that has LEDs, or I'm using a laptop that has indicator lights for the jump position positions of the seats. I want to have the question that I'm reading and the answer be about in the same place every time that I, because then, you know, my eyes sort of get sort of uh, calisthenically or physically uh, trained to kind of snap from one location where my paper is to where the, the LEDs or the, or the indicator lights happen to be. And I, I, if I move down the particular page, my eyes can sometimes get lost a little bit in that transition. And so what I'll tend to do after using, when using paper, after every question, I kind of fold the paper over a little bit to get that, the, the next question in exactly or very close to the same position as the previous question. And of course with, with CBQZ, I don't have to do any of that. I literally hit the correct button and immediately I'm on to the next question. It's ex in exactly the same place. There's no thinking. There's no folding. And granted that 
you know, in a single question going between seven and eight, what are we talking about here? We're talking about maybe a second or two. Uh, but when you, when you count up, you know, all 20 questions, uh, maybe a little bit of, of some A's and B's here and there, you're talking about maybe 20, 30 seconds or something like that. I think, I think that sort of stuff adds up. It kind of also adds to the pacing of the quiz. But the other thing, I think the, the bigger thing for me, even bigger than that, is the confidence to make rulings very quickly. Um, so if somebody gets out of context, mm-hmm. um, you know, in CBQZ, there's the little, the, the search field, right? And so if somebody's starting to write aside a question, they hit a couple of keywords, I can type in their, the couple of keywords while they're continuing to answer, and I can go, they're out of context, clearly, unambiguously, they're two chapters away, and I can call it right then. And instead of going out to the end of the 30 seconds, they've, they've expended, you know, eight seconds, 10 seconds, and I can say, yeah, I'm sorry, you're out of, uh, you're out of context, I, I have to call you incorrect, and we just immediately move it on to the next question. And then there's this, also this aspect of when I feel uh less than 100% confident in my ruling let's say or or in the case where i am as confident as i could be but i know that it's potentially a challengeable ruling i will kind of intentionally pause for a couple of seconds before the next question um i will usually try to do i don't know i'm kind of giving away my secrets here but i will usually try i will usually fidget <laughs> You know, I'll pretend to be doing uh, something to intentionally pause for a couple of seconds just to give uh, the captains of the teams an opportunity to rise to challenge if they want to before I move on. And so increasing, at least for me in my room, increasing the confidence that I have in my rulings because of the reference lookup material, the color coding, uh, seeing stuff in context, the searchability and so forth, all of that sort of combined and everything is right there. Uh, I can make those sorts of determinations very quickly. I can say, like, this is unambiguously correct or this is unambiguously incorrect. And I can make those kinds of very clear, obvious rulings a lot faster, uh, which doesn't it doesn't mean that I'm that I'm right all the time. Certainly somebody could still challenge, but it means I'm not going to waste maybe one, two, three seconds fidgeting before I move on to the next question uh, in that context. I, I mean, I still remember, you know, way back. I mean, this was quite a number of years ago, but I remember back when we had the reference material, like no computers whatsoever, no laptops, uh, we had printed reference material. And so the idea of, of almost every question, you had to like open up this big binder and flip, 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 and look things up in concordances and in material references and so forth. And uh, now it's, uh, all of that is is gone and it's, and it's much, much, much faster that way. Abby, in her room, in room two, she was commenting that she had multiple eight minute quizzes uh, and she's not one for going lickety split. Um, she definitely is is a careful, precise uh, quiz master. And so for her to do, you know, a couple of eight minute quizzes is, uh, I mean, we sort of streamlined all of the non quizzing stuff and automated it. So that's, I mean, I was pretty excited about that. Yeah, I was too. And I, I think that is a big deal, being very confident about the material that's being presented to you by the quizzer and being able to look up whatever they're quoting super fast to make a confident ruling. Because most often as a quiz master, you don't gain a whole lot by giving uh, by calling the quizzer incorrect before their time runs out. Um, if you just let their time run out, it a lot of stuff takes care of itself. Um, but 
if you can be this confident because you can look up exactly what the quizzer is saying and know exactly where they are, you can get some significant efficiency savings there. Yeah, I definitely let the timer run out as sort of a um, a being careful step. Like if if I'm not 100% confident they're wrong, I'll let the timer run out because then it's sort of the uh, – it's it's not a challengeable I have to redo the question sort of situation. We can maybe argue about whether the answer was correct or incorrect, but we're not going to repeat the question. Sure. Well, you were talking about how you will fidget um, if you're if you just made a tough ruling and you're almost inviting a challenge. And it reminded me of a situation in my room where I had such a ruling, and actually one answer judge agreed with me and one disagreed with me. And so I ended up making a ruling and then pausing. And you could tell one of our most experienced quizzers was thinking about challenging and ultimately decided not to. And I asked them after the quiz, like, why didn't you? And the answer was kind of, I didn't feel 100% sure um, that I was right in my challenge. And I just tried to be encouraging, like, you don't have to be sure to that extent. Like, challenging is meant so that you can bring forward your viewpoint about what the quizzer said, what they should have needed to say, or what the rule book says and how to interpret it. And don't be worried about being wrong or not knowing 100% or not being completely sure that you'll be right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I'm assuming they didn't already have a single overruled challenge, right? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no risk. I mean, if you if you haven't challenged yet uh, or if you have, but it's always been accepted, there's no risk in, in, in challenging there. It's it's uh, what's the worst th- thing that happens? Uh, it gets uh, considered and overruled and there's no impact. Uh, I so I certainly if you if you're concerned that potentially there might be an incorrect ruling, go ahead and challenge. Uh, there's there's no bad that can come from it and potentially some good. Absolutely. And I brought up an example from Great West. It was actually in finals. And I asked a chapter verse reference multiple answer and a quizzer jumped and got it right. And then a a captain from another team got up and said, hey, um, I think there are two answers to this question. So you should have introduced it as a chapter verse reference multiple answer. Um, And everyone kind of started looking at him like, yeah, it, it was. And he might have been a little bit embarrassed. And I actually brought up this situation at our last meeting. I said, hey, like that kind of thing will happen, but everyone forgets about it immediately and no one's going to make fun of you if you if you if your challenge is of that variety, which I knew yours wasn't even going to be of. Um, but immediately they said, yeah, I didn't want to make a challenge like that. And so I just I hope that um, quizzers don't feel that they're going to be embarrassed or because I think it's all in in competition. We're all trying to make the right rulings and have a good time. And we're definitely not trying to embarrass someone or make anyone feel bad about a challenge that they make. Right. Right. Certainly. Well, I mean, one of the things that was nice about it, I mean, we were all on, on Wi-Fi, uh, which worked out fairly nicely. I had to swat, uh, switch over to my hotspot actually, uh, at one point, I think on Saturday because the, uh, was it on Saturday? I can't even remember anymore, but I think it was on Saturday where, uh, the Wi-Fi in my particular room started to get a little bit flaky. It seemed like it was only me, though. Everybody else was was working out just fine. Uh, but other than that, it seemed to be working okay. CBQZ is designed uh, to be very, very light on network resources. 
Uh, There's a sort of a big chunk of download that it has to do when it first loads up, when it's loading up the material. But other than that, it's it's very, very lightweight over the the network, Uh, at least for right now. um, I'm looking at potentially adding a chat feature (laughs) for for quiz masters to talk to each other uh, and and sort of trade status. Uh, Of course, that's going to be nothing coming anytime soon, but potentially uh, coming up for next year. Yeah, I really... I really enjoyed using it. So we've got a, two more topics, but I'm going to take them out of order because I think it flows a little bit better. So I am part of the CQLT Rules Committee. So there's a, a group of five of us who talk about potential rules changes to the rulebook. And we had a meeting recently because there were a few pressing topics, and I wanted to cover what, what we uh, concluded. So the first topic was implied situation answers is what we're calling them. And the example is... In narrative material, when we have situation questions, there may be a conversation between people like, say, Jesus and Peter. And Peter's, Peter asks, Jesus, what must I do to enter heaven? Jesus answered, do this and this and this and this. Well, can I write a who said it to whom on Jesus's quote, even though it, the text doesn't say Jesus replied to Peter, like in an explicit sense? And um, this was raised because among the many question writers who contribute to internationals, there was kind of a difference of convention. There were some people that said, hey, if it's clear two people talking to each other, I'm going to write the to whom part of the situation question all the time. And the other, the other um, viewpoint was unless it's explicitly stated in the text, I don't want to be assuming what's happening no matter how clear it is. And so the CQLT – Rules Committee talked about it, and we had a really good discussion, and we ultimately decided that we definitely want to allow these sorts of questions to be written, but we did not – we specifically did not want to write into the rulebook that they were clearly valid or clearly invalid because we viewed it as largely a style of good question writing and not something that we needed to legislate either for or against in a very clear manner because then we would also have to define – you know, the degree to which a situation question and answer is stated, you know, like how do you define explicitness versus implicitness? And we could sense that being kind of a rat trail. And so we just kind of said, hey, these, it's definitely going to be allowed. We're not going to write it into the rule book and it's going to be a style. Um, it's, it's, you know, going to be like a, a quiz master is not going to write a who said it to whom, where the to whom is he that's clarified eight verses back because context still applies, right? The material has to come from within five verses. So that that's still going to apply to all of these types of questions. And then quizzers can definitely challenge for trickier misleading, right? If there's a group of people, if there's the 12 disciples and they're conversing and Jesus answers and it's not like super clear who he is answering, question writers should not be writing a to whom on that quote by Jesus. But that's a really difficult thing to define in a rule book as invalid. And so um, just treating this as, again, style um, and hope that the question writers make good efforts to write really good questions, have conversations with themselves. Um, and at the end of the day, the questions in the International's Question Set are, are written by a multitude of question writers and checked by a multitude of editors. And so you will both get different viewpoints represented in the question set, but because of the multiple writers and multiple editors – you will also see a good degree of smoothing of style so that there's not wild variances in the style of questions being written, both of which I think are a good thing. Yeah, totally. Cool. So that was the first bit, and then the other two bits were pretty procedural. 
One of them was on the Quizmaster's use of again. Um, the way that we interpret the rulebook is unless it ex- explicitly says that a Quizmaster has to do something, then they are not allowed to do it. So in the case of, say, Quizmaster prompts, what is your question? Can you clarify he more on, you know, a finish the verse? Those are things a Quizmaster has to say, but they also can't say any variances of that. They can't say, can you give me a little bit more on the reference or um, anything else, right? And the rulebook currently just allows a Quizmaster to say again on finish the verse and quote questions when the quizzer has reached the end of the verse. There is no talk of a Quizmaster being able to say again on other question types. And so we changed that. So Quizmaster can say again on other question types. And then the other very, very fine point is the rulebook currently says a Quizmaster can say more when the quizzer has given everything in the, I believe, answer, but is missing information in the question. And we thought it a little bit weird to force a quiz master, an answer judge, um, to know the content of the question and the answer and think of them separately before knowing what prompt to give a quizzer. And so we just said if a quizzer is missing information, the quiz master will prompt more. And if they need to fix something, um, the quiz master will say again. And this is definitely meant to push quiz masters to be very consistent in the prompts that they are given to quizzers. I think from a quizzer standpoint, um, more and again prompts from the quizmaster are should really be no help to you. Um, whatever question you're answering, once you've started answering it, you've picked a context. And if the quizmaster hasn't said you're correct or you're incorrect, there's nothing to be gained by saying nothing. And there's everything to be gained by saying more stuff from that same context. And you shouldn't wait for the quizmaster to give you a prompt before continuing to answer. Um, I think this will be a very helpful thing for beginning quizzers where sometimes they're very unsure about what they're answering and a quiz master prompt of more will be like, oh, I can say more stuff, you know, or, or I should say more stuff. And I think that can be very helpful. But I think the more experienced you get in quizzing and the more we move up the competitive chain to Great West and Winter Nationals and Internationals, the fewer and fewer more and again prompts that the quiz master is providing I think is better. Um, so I try to be very, very sparing in the prompts that I'm given, giving unless I feel that there's a very, very specific way it can benefit the quizzer and it will be interpreted in only that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's nothing I, – I can't think of a situation where if in any particular question type where if you try to answer and you're not counted correct, why it would be a bad idea to just start quoting the verse. Uh, you know, as long as you stay within context, uh, I can't imagine it would be a bad idea to just start quoting the verse and maybe you don't get the, get it correct for some technicality or some sort of edge case. But if you can quote the verse after you've attempted to answer, it's very likely you're, you're going to get the answer correct. Absolutely. And here's another case where it helps to know the material super well because there have been times on a quote question where I haven't quite finished the verse part of the reference and a quizzer quotes the verse and then I either look at them or I say more. And because they know they know the material well, they know they quoted it right. And so their mind automatically says, what else could I need to give that's not the verse? And then they're like, oh, it's probably the verse number. And then they give it. Whereas a quizzer who might have stumbled through the quoting and had been prompted again, and then at some point they get a more, they're kind of more confused because they're not confident about 
what they have to give more of. But if you know the material super, super well, you can be confident that you quoted it right and the more that you need has to be from somewhere else, like the verse number. Right. I think it's also just a really good practice in a chapter or chapter verse reference question or a quote question to complete the reference before or, or just repeat the reference. Even if the even if the quizmaster said the reference and you think they said the entire reference, just go ahead and say it again. I mean, it takes half a second to do it. Uh, you know, chapter four, verse 13, you know, that, that sort of thing. And in doing that, you're giving yourself, it, it only, like I said, it only takes, you know, a second or two of your time and you've sort of grounded yourself contextually. You sort of, it's almost like a, maybe a pacing thing to kind of set you up for being able to quote if it's a quote question. And then you never have to worry about going back and finishing later. You can keep you know, if, if it's in a quote question, you have one particular word that you're trying to fix. Uh, you've got all of your time to go back and actually do that carefully. And you don't have to worry about stumbling back to like, oh, wait. So there's no like, what am I trying to say? I'm so tired. I can't talk anymore. There's there's a you don't have to do a, a, a mental gymnastics to kind of get back to that reference. You can kind of focus on the reference, take care of it and move on. The only exception of course, being a reference question where the question hasn't been finished. And then it's like, Oh yeah, sure. You, at the end, you do need to go back and, and get the question, but you're going to get a prompt, a very explicit prompt by the quiz master in those contexts anyway. So it's not a big deal. Totally. There are so many cases where just, Quoting the verse that you're in is going to help quizzers, be it a when interrogative where they have to go back to the beginning of the verse. Maybe they've quoted half the verse and kind of get stuck, but going back to the beginning of the verse and getting a running start will get them to the end. Um, there's there's so many cases where just going and quoting the verse helps quizzers out. Yeah, certainly. So our last topic is evangelism ideas. So the health of a district is predominantly based on how many programs are involved, not necessarily how many quizzers are involved. And Griffin has some ideas about how within PNW we can evangelize to churches and, and entice them to join Bible quizzing. Well, I think you should clarify, they're not just ideas, they're crazy ideas, um, because we haven't determined whether they are going to work, and they might be completely out in left field, uh, but we're probably going to try a few of these and just kind of see what happens over the summer. Uh, so Scott is not uh, coaching the internationals team. I am not coaching the internationals team. We have two uh, former quizzers and former coaches, actually current coaches. They're both current coaches who are uh, extremely good uh, and knowledgeable, uh, both coaches and former quizzers who are uh, taking and shepherding the internationals team. And so, Scott, while I, I suspect you're going to probably be practicing, uh, maybe helping with some practices from time to time, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, but you're not necessarily going to be uh, as heavily involved as you would be as a coach. So there's a little bit more time and we're going to get to go uh, attempt our uh, church evangelism program, church Bible quizzing evangelism program. And so one idea that we had was, uh, you know, we, we live in the Pacific Northwest, which is the most beautiful place on planet Earth. Um, I'm sorry if you don't live here. Um, I, I cry for you, uh, but you can come visit. We're very happy if you come visit because it is the greatest place uh, on God's green earth. But, uh, there are, it's a fairly wide area. Uh, we have a fairly expansive, uh, region. We have folks, uh, conceivable. Let's see. What's the farthest Northern team that we have right now? Just North Seattle. 
North Seattle Alliance. But I mean, theoretically, we could have teams all the way up into uh, Bellingham or right up all the way up to the Canadian border, uh, up into Linden uh, or Blaine, even if we wanted to. Uh, we could have folks way out on the Olympic Peninsula. And then we have a team uh, this last year from Corvallis. We have a team from Madras, Oregon. Uh, in years past, we had teams from uh, Moses Lake and Yakima. I think didn't did we used to have a team from Spokane or Coeur d'Alene in years past? Um, if we did, that predated me, but I think we definitely did, and we did have a an actual British Columbia team when oh, wow. when that district was getting started. Very interesting. So, I mean, it's a fairly expansive uh, it, it's an expansive district. How far east does it go? Do we get does do we get to claim Coeur d'Alene or do we stop at the at the Washington Idaho border? I'm not sure exactly. I think the next closest district is Rocky Mountain, and I seem to think of them as only Montana. So I don't know if we would, if we technically would get Idaho, but. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I mean, I'm assuming Missoula would be, uh, in their, uh, district and maybe, you know, the east or the western side of the, the Rockies would be ours. So, see, so the, the reason I'm asking is, is Sandpoint because I desperately want there to be a Bible quiz meet in Sandpoint because although we live in the most beautiful place, uh, in the world, Sandpoint is a very close runner up. Um, and I could see the argument that it might even be more pretty there. Uh, especially in the fall and the winter, uh, it can be uh, rather gorgeous there. But anyway, so one of the ideas that we had was, uh, I've got, you know, a couple airplanes and I really love to fly. I have a kind of a sickness and an obsession with flying. And so one idea that we had was, well, let's get Scott and me into an airplane and, and, uh, grab four quizzers, throw them in the back and, uh, go fly somewhere and, uh, go off to some sort, you know, fly to Yakima do a demonstration of what quizzing is to a couple of churches, fly over to Moses Lake, maybe do it there, go over to Spokane, do it there, Pullman, uh, Moscow would be a great one, Walla Walla. I mean, there's a whole bunch of uh, towns that we could visit. And of course, I'm only talking about uh, Washington there. I don't mean to exclude anybody from uh, northern Idaho or from uh, Oregon, but certainly there's a lot of churches that we could go visit very quickly. And, uh, you know, then basically get in front of people and say, look, here's a team, here's what they can do, show off what quizzing is like, explain it a little bit, and hopefully promote the idea of quizzing. Because, I mean, one of the things I found in trying to get people excited about quizzing, interested in quizzing, is just getting them to understand what it is. It's it's Unless you see it and unless you experience it, it's very difficult to understand what's going on. I, I'm remembering my own personal experience. I I didn't get a chance to quiz. I, I became a, a Christian in college, and so I kind of missed out on the Bible quizzing as a quizzer experience. But the, uh, the person that um, I was pretty close with in terms of Christian community introduced me to quizzing uh, very quickly after I became a, a Christian. And I remember going to a couple of quiz practices and just kind of not getting it. Like, he would explain quizzing to me, but I would just be like, okay, this seems kind of weird, but okay, I guess I'll just participate. And and a, a lot of the stuff in those first couple of practices, all he did was just sort of sit there and kind of watch what was going on and kind of get a feel for what was happening in the practice. But again, it just, it was very confusing and it didn't make a lot of sense. And then I went to my first quiz meet. And I'm not really sure where that was, uh, 
I want to say it was in Bainbridge Island, but I could be wrong. I don't remember where it was, but it was it was original it was original meat in the Pacific Northwest district. And seeing a couple of quizzes, it sort of I think it was like even within that first quiz, just kind of like, oh, now I get it. And certainly there was still a lot that I didn't understand about quizzing, but it was sort of in that moment of seeing the real thing, realizing, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. And then, of course, the addiction started and it just kind of grew from there. So my hope is maybe demoing a team out can try to get people excited about this. Uh, and of course, I can just use this as an excuse to fly because I'm always looking for excuses to fly. But we had dinner, uh, Scott and I and Lawrence, one of our uh, answer judges, uh, we had dinner uh, just before the championship meet on Friday. And we came up with a theory that might poke a hole in this. Uh, there is the theory that says, well, if you want to start a quiz program at a church, what is the critical path? to starting a quiz program. Do you need quizzers who are interested uh, and then everything else falls into place? Or do you need a coach or two willing to lead things and, and, and then youth who are at least neutral about the idea of trying it out? And that is what actually leads to a program. And I'm not really sure what the answer is, but I don't know, Scott, what, what, are, you, what are your thoughts about all this stuff? I think we came to the conclusion that it's, it's generally a, a parent or an adult who is willing to um, have the kind of chaperoning and organizational responsibility to run a team that is the, the catalyst. Well, maybe not the catalyst, but at least the um, the turning point to having a team. Um, and we were kind of knocking around ideas of how to identify those sorts of individuals, especially since if you go directly to a senior pastor or a youth pastor, they're already so overwhelmed with um, their current ministries that most often they will shut you down pretty fast. Yeah. yeah I mean, even even pastors who are very positive and encouraging and want to see additional ministries and don't feel the need that they need to control everything uh, – even those guys, it, it's a, it's confusing. You know, if you've never experienced quizzing before, if you've never seen it before, it seems kind of weird. Uh, and you think, well, okay, I guess that might work for you, but maybe not in our church. And I just don't, I don't know how to respond to this is sort of the, the reaction I get a lot. I, I tend to evangelize quizzing to a lot of pastors. I am a, a, a pastor. I'm ordained a church of God Anderson. And so, you know, I, I congregate a lot with other pastors and I'm, I wouldn't say constantly, but very nearly constantly talking about Bible quizzing to a lot of these guys. And the reaction I get is usually very positive. It's usually like, that's great. That sounds like a wonderful program. And then I say, well, hey, can can I talk to you about getting a team started at your church? Oh, well, I don't know. Uh, what would we have to do? Uh, you know, and it's it's kind of this feeling of confusion and overwhelmness at the pastorate level because they're like like Scott was saying, they're already overwhelmed with so many uh, things. And I'm sitting here uh, telling them about this program that is another thing to add onto their plate. And it's kind of like a non-starter just on that point. But if we can find the 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 parents the guardians the maybe the young marrieds or like you know college just you know college or post college age who are kind of looking for a mission are looking for kind of for a a Christian purpose something to do something to serve uh, I I cannot imagine something that is going to be better and more impactful 
than leading a quizzing program. Because, I mean, this is not to knock uh, youth programs of other sorts, you know, uh, youth groups and so forth. Those are wonderful and they have their place. But when you're talking about the amount of change that can happen in somebody's life, it's hard for me to imagine a, a program that does more for uh, people than Bible quiz. I totally agree. It's such a unique form of, of study, and you re- you really develop disciples throughout through Bible quizzing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a way to truly change lives. Yeah, I mean – change them in meaningful, lasting, and very important ways, uh, changing lives for Christ. So, I mean, if that sounds like something that would be interested, uh, interesting to you, I think uh, quizzing uh, could be a good fit. I totally agree, and I hope we can do such outreach and evangelism and bring many more people to the wonderful program that we have. Well, uh, that's it for our topics list. So, of course, we want to remind everybody that uh, we would love to hear from you, uh, whether you are in the Pacific Northwest, otherwise known as the greatest place on Earth, or anywhere else. Uh, there are other places that are nearly as good. Uh, so if you are in one of those nearly as good places, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, email us at iq at cbqz.org and follow us on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. I've got some real-time follow-up, Griffin. Okay. The, alliance, the, the Pacific Northwest District boundaries are Alaska, that part of Idaho in the Pacific time zone, Oregon, and Washington. That part of Idaho in the Pacific time zone. Okay, so that definitely includes Sandpoint. So I'm very happy. Uh, and Alaska, wow, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to take a trip up there and do some evangelizing. I'm on board for that. <laughs> awesome. Well, maybe if anybody is listening from Alaska, maybe we'll uh, come up and visit sometime this summer. Sounds great. All right. Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful off season. Bye, everybody. <laughs>